Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, hey, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 164. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell with you. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security means strength. Welcome into this week's edition of the podcast as we settle into the dog days of summer a little bit early here in the state of Maine. <laughs> Hot, humid temperatures, but hey, we'll take it. It's summertime. No complaints around here uh, about that. We've got a couple of fine music conversations for you this week on the program. Coming up in the second half, singer-songwriter Gary Newman, who burst on the scene in the late 1970s with the album The Pleasure Principle and his mega-hit single, Cars. He has been making music for more than four decades, and his brand-new album, getting great reviews and doing quite well, uh, it's called Intruder. We'll talk with Gary about the album, career, and more a little bit later on in the podcast. But up first, a very interesting guy by the name of Alec Whiteman. He's a corporate attorney with some strong connections to music. For the last 25 years, he has been promoting shows through his Zeppelin Productions out in Ohio. He is also a member of the board and a former chairman of the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So he's had a chance to meet a lot of the people whose music he has enjoyed through the years. And he tells those stories in a wonderful new book called Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. Our conversation with Alec Whiteman here on Downtown. Well, good morning, Alec. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, good morning, Rich. It's a, it's a pleasure. Actually, I think I, I should begin by saying, you're Alec Whiteman. I do my best, Dion. There. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like sounds like you've read the book. I read the book and and I loved it. It's it's a wonderful ride. And uh, as somebody who has also been a longtime fan, it's great to see how your life has given you well an opportunity that most corporate lawyers don't get, as you point out, to uh, to bring a lot of joy to to the music fans. There 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 is no question those uh, that there have been a lot of opportunities and. Those evenings of standing on the side of the room of a show that I've promoted and seeing the looks on people's faces, the, the pleasure they're uh, they're getting from the performance is something most corporate lawyers don't ever uh, enjoy. <laughs> well, every fan needs something to light the fuse. And for you, as you point out, it was Dion DiMucci. What was it about Dion that, that made you stand up and take notice as a young man? Well, you know, I don't know. Uh, when I think back on it now and realize I was only 10 years old, uh, you know, uh, it, it's amazing that a 21-year-old Italian-American kid from the Bronx could connect with this 10-year-old in Euclid, Ohio. But uh, it, it was a combination, I'm sure, of, of you know, great melody, great tunes, but, uh, you know, the words to those, those Dion songs, and then finding out that he actually wrote a lot of them, uh, you know, was impactful as well, even as a kid. And that relationship becomes full circle. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But I love those early chapters where you sort of trace your own musical background. I was struck by the fact that we seem to have some some musical tastes in common. And uh, my my eyes and ears perked up when I read about uh, your favorite song of 1962, which is one of my all-time favorites, Gene Pitney's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. You know, it, it is a great song. I, I mentioned in the book that, and, uh, you know, we, we hope we don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. But, uh, uh, you know, I don't think that song ever appeared in the movie. 
but it is a great, great song. And uh, and actually, Gene Pitney was another one of those guys, although he did not write that song. Uh, in addition to being a great singer and a great musician, he also was a great songwriter. Songs like Hello, Mary Lou, and uh, He's a Rebel, you know, for the Crystals. Who, who would have thought? Well, and it was such a great time to come of age if you were somebody who loved music and uh, you got the opportunity. I, I was reminded of a, a little button my wife gave me several years ago uh, that said, uh, you know, I may be old, but I got to see all the cool bands. And uh, you, <laughs> <laughs> you certainly had some opportunities, even more so uh, when you went off to Duke University. And just some of those experiences you had as a young music fan, seeing Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, uh, it's staggering to think about it now, but at the time... Well, it was just what you did. It, it was just what, what you did. And uh, uh, when you saw people like that, you didn't know they were going to be uh, gone in months, uh, years at the most. Uh, uh, but the music was tremendous. It was, a, it was a golden era. There is no question. And I, I was especially moved by uh, you relating the story of seeing Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young doing Ohio shortly after it came out in just 30 miles from Kent State. No, yes, I, I grew up in Euclid, and uh, I think I mentioned in the book one of the things that was impactful to me was the realization uh, that you know I had high school classmates on both sides of the line. Uh, I had high school classmates uh, who were at Kent State and were, you know, uh, in the crowd, uh, and those National Guard units in Northeast Ohio were filled with uh, kids who signed up to avoid going to Vietnam. The concept that. Uh, high school friends were shooting at high school friends. I, I'm not sure that's an angle on that whole experience that that's uh, really been adequately told. But anyway, yes. So you know, it was within uh, 60 days of that event that Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young came to uh, Cleveland, played in, in public uh, hall, and I was there, and did Ohio, which uh, had only been released at that point for a few weeks. It was a powerful moment. But it's incredible to think about it, too. We talked with Graham Nash on our show a couple of years ago, and, and we talked about that being something that would probably never happen today, that you would have an event of such significance and that a band would, first of all, write the song, record it, and then get it released so quickly while it was still really in the midst of people reacting to the events. Well, that's true, and that's, that's obviously what happened. I, you know, I, I guess I'm... Hard pressed to think of other examples quite like that. Uh, you know, uh, the boss. You know, Bruce Springsteen did did uh, the Rising. Uh, you know, I, I'd have to go back and think about it. Certainly, w within a year, uh, within months of 9/11. Um, but yeah, these these guys were in the studio. It seemed like within uh, hours, uh, maybe days, and, and had it out in just a few weeks. I have to ask Alec, do you still have that little record player that you got as a youngster? <laughs> I do not. I do not. Um, I did find uh, find a picture of one that's in the book, <laughs> but that that's not mine. No, nope. the Webcore Music Man bit the dust sometime in the very late '60s, as I recall. Uh, you and I had a similar a similar reaction to an album that came out uh, in 1971. Uh, Rod Stewart's "Every Picture Tells the Story." I was blown away by that album, and then, as you say, seeing him in concert may be still one of the great live music experiences of your life. It, it's true. I, uh, I had purchased that record, as I recall, in, in May of, of 71, and uh, 
uh, I was stranded at Duke. I'd had a car that was in an accident. I couldn't get home, and I was down there for a couple of weeks, and I played that record over and over and over again, just uh, totally obsessed with it, and then came home to Cleveland to find out that uh, they were going to be uh, at public auditorium just a few weeks later. And uh, uh, sometimes it's, it's just to be provocative, I suppose, but <laughs> I've said that that was the sign of a rock and roll show as I ever saw Rod Stewart in the faces. Uh, uh, I'm sure the true musicians would say they were sloppy, and, you know, whatever. <laughs> but holy cow, when Rod Stewart hit the stage, um, he was in command. We're talking with Alec Whiteman about his wonderful new book, Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. I love your chapter on your rock pantheon. And, and let's start with Neil Young. What is about his writing and his performing that speaks to you? You know, uh, again, it's, it's a little bit like the Dion question. It's hard It's hard to answer. Um, you know, I love Neil in his acoustic mode. I love Neil in his electric mode. Uh, when I bought that first Buffalo Springfield album, uh, you know, late 66 or early 67, whenever it was, it was the Neil Young songs that jumped out to me, many of them sung by uh, Richie Ferrey, but but Neil's songs. Uh, and, you know, as those albums, the, the three Buffalo Springfield albums came out, it was it was Neil that, that always spoke to me, uh, sometimes for me, um, you know, and then and then. The, the the solo stuff, the crazy horse stuff, all all great records. And, and seeing Neil live, uh, you know, it's a little bit of hold your breath as to you know how Neil's going to be at that moment in time. Uh, but boy, I've seen some great shows. And uh, Springsteen, very high on your list as well. He's pretty near the top of my list. And again, uh, for me, it seems like uh, his music has just always been there in some fashion. Well, it, it's true, except as, as I point out in the book, for me, you know, I missed those first two albums. Right. Um, I, I, I missed them totally, and uh, I was buying a lot of records, and I had friends who were buying records, but I, I missed the first two. And when, when uh, you know, Born to Run came and he ended up on the cover of Newsweek and Time the same week, I was such a music snob, you know, I, I, I didn't want to catch him late. Uh, so even then I, you know, when that record exploded, I, I wasn't quite there. And a friend dragged me to see him on the, I think they called it the lawsuit tour or some such thing. It was when he was all tied up in litigation with his manager and was unable to record, but he didn't keep him off the road. And I saw him in, in Columbus for the first time. And I don't know, 77, 76, 77, something like that. Uh, and once you, see Bruce live, <laughs> you know, you, you can't ignore him going forward. And I love your story about seeing him uh, in the remarkable setting of Springsteen on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that was a treat. Um, my wife had had some health issues. She is just fine now, but she'd had a difficult 2017. And, uh, uh, you know, I have the good fortune of being deeply involved with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and in that context, being a member of the foundation board, I've gotten to know John Landau fairly well, and uh, John was kind enough to provide us with access to tickets right after the first of the year. It was our our first outing after a tough a tough 2017, and uh, uh, to sit there right in the in the front center and, and see Bruce on Broadway was a powerful experience. And I see he's coming back. He's going to be right. Back, uh, I think here in the next week or two, he starts up again with a run on Broadway. He's the the, the first uh, uh, theater open 
know, after the pandemic. Mm. You'll appreciate this story, Alica. Back in, it must have been 1985 or so, I was working at a country station, and we began playing a couple of songs, um, a couple of Springsteen songs, uh, I'm on Fire and My Hometown on the country station, Billboard, did a story on that, and a few weeks later, I got a package in the mail, and it was from John Landau with a letter thanking me for exposing Bruce's music to a new audience, and he had sent along uh, vinyl of every single Springsteen album that had been recorded up to that time and all signed by Bruce. Wow. Well, I, I, I get goosebumps listening to that story. <laughs> you, you ought to write a book. <laughs> uh, I think I'll, I'll focus on the reading because I loved yours. Alec Whiteman's book is called Music in My Life. And and I love what happens as uh, you begin to experience music on a different level by promoting shows uh, through Zeppelin Productions. Can you tell a little bit of the story of how the great Tom Russell led to this uh, new phase of your life in music? Well, I, I, I became a fan of Tom's, I think, probably in the in the mid-'80s. I, I, I sort of built my, my record collection by uh, chasing uh, songwriters and producers and backup musicians from one album to another. And uh, I, had, I had heard uh, St. Olaf's Gate on a Nancy Griffith album, and uh, that got me off to listening to Tom Russell, and I was a huge fan, and I was a member of his I was on his mailing list. In those days, there used to be this thing where you had pieces of paper and you folded them up and put a little <laughs> stamp and put them in a in a box, and they showed up at somebody else's house. So I was on his hard mail list. And one day I got a mailer, and on the back of the little four-sheet uh, uh, thing that he was sending out, there was a square that said, if you know a venue in your town that would be appropriate for Tom, call this number. It sat on my desk for, I don't know, a month. And one day I dialed the phone number. I, I don't even know what inspired me to do it. And a guy answered at the other end. And we talked a little. And he, he, I said I was in Columbus, Ohio. He said, well, you're not going to believe this. But Tom's got a little Midwest tour kicking off. And he's got a night open between Pittsburgh and Detroit. See what you can do. So I called every uh, venue in Columbus that did live music and said, if you bring this guy in, I'll sell 20 tickets. And they all laughed at me. And I called back and left a message the, the next day that I couldn't get anything done. And a day or two later, I was in our law firm's Cleveland office, and I got a, I was interrupted a note that my secretary in Columbus had called and said, Tom Russell called. And for me, as, as I say in the book, that <laughs> it was probably somewhere between Springsteen and Mick Jagger. I don't know. But I called Tom back. He was living in Brooklyn at the time, and we had a great conversation on the phone. He was twisting my arm to do something, even if it was a house concert, which I didn't even know existed, you know. Um, but I said, no, I couldn't. I got off the phone. I called my wife and said, I just talked to Tom Russell. And I told her the story. She she said, you've got to do that. So I knew a little venue in town that I had been to some acoustic shows in. And, and uh, I called. And sure enough, it was a you know little uh, renovated firehouse. And uh, it was open uh, Thursday night, I think, March 8, 1995. And uh, uh so I brought Tom into town, and on eight days' notice, I got 99 people there. <laughs> I knew everybody in the crowd, every uh, family member, friend, client, uh, co-worker whose arm I could twist. Uh, and Tom and his then-longtime guitar player, Andrew Hart, came. And they put on a wonderful show, told lawyer jokes, you know, personalized <laughs> it. We went out afterwards. I had so much fun. I said, you know, I can't quit. 
And here I am 26 or 27 years later, and I'm still doing it. And I love your criteria. Uh, I have promoted some shows at a much lower level uh, around here, but I, I think we share the same approach, which is great music, largely music we love, and nice people. Yeah. Hard as it may be to believe, there are there are some uh, musicians out there who, who aren't as nice as others. That, you know, that, that may even be true with lawyers. Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> oh, I can't imagine uh, that. <laughs> When you're just in it for fun and you're and you're dealing at this kind of level where it's all pretty intimate, including with the artists, uh, it's important that you deal with nice people. And uh, I've really never missed. Uh, oh, I've had some that you know have been on the road for a long time, and this was just another gig, and the warm and fuzzies weren't quite there. But for lots of the ones I've I've brought to town over these years, either they're they're young folks trying to make it, or more likely some of the folks that have been out there for a decade or three. Uh, and this is what they do for a living. And uh, every dollar they make puts food on the table. But, uh, but I've been lucky. I've, I've met a lot of nice people. Well, and, and you make a great point, too, that as you got to know musicians, you realized that, uh, I think as you put it, they're, they're just regular people whose job is making music. I, I, you know, I, I think that's absolutely true. Now, you know, there's an artistic mentality in all of that, uh, I suppose. But, but they're just people. And, and this is what they do for a living. Uh, you know, I suppose they're all mostly anyway, lucky enough to have a passion for the art form and, and a passion for what they do, but for, you know, it's a job, uh, and, you know, they've got to be businesslike about it. Uh, and, and they've got a lot of interests other than the music, you know, they're just people. Yeah. And as, as you pointed out in a number of cases, when you've gotten, uh, to really know some of these artists and, and become friends with them you end up talking often more about the other things than about the music. And that was certainly the case with a number of people. Some of my favorites that you've brought in for your live shows, people like Matresa Berg, uh, Dan Penn, Chuck Prophet, and uh, a guy that we brought in here a couple of years ago for a show. And, and I had a similar reaction. He was, um, he seemed a bit shy and I don't want to say aloof at first, but then sitting backstage in the dressing room talking about non-musical things, uh, really got to know and appreciate Jimmy Webb as a person and, and what a great person he is. There is no question. I, you know, doing a little research about you and your show, I saw that you had had uh, Jimmy on the show. And, uh, you know, that was a fascinating experience for me. Uh, basically spent a weekend with him because I picked him up in Cleveland and chauffeured him to a show there. And then after the show, we, we got in my car and spent a, uh, a few hours driving back to Columbus, and then he was down here to show the next night. We hung out a bunch, came back to the house. and uh, Yes, I had had the impression on the front end that perhaps he was going to be a little aloof, a little reclusive. Uh, and, and maybe he is, but once he got comfortable and we began to talk, and, and about many things other than, than music, um, he's a great guy. He's a, he's, you know, nice person. I love the story about uh, the show you did with Art Garfunkel and, and Art has the reputation of sometimes being a, a bit prickly, and you had some trepidation <laughs> going into that. But uh, wow, it, it it seems like it couldn't have worked out better. It couldn't have worked out better. Um, you know, the, the that that was I do call it a once in a lifetime experience because with an emphasis on one, uh, because you know it was a little a little bigger show than I was used to doing, and and ended up getting slightly overwhelmed at the venue we were using um it all worked out fine but it was it, it was a little scary and uh and art is different um 
But, you know, from the minute he and I first shook hands, he looked at me and he said, oh, nice smile. (laughs) (laughs) We kind of clicked, uh, you know, and I I tell the stories in the book, some of the different challenges we had that evening, accommodating his needs, including my sound man having to iron his shirt immediately (laughs) before he went on stage because he would not go on stage unless that white shirt was crisp. but to, to my wife and I ended up ending up having a wonderful lunch with he and his wife in in New York a year or so later. So, uh, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Your work with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has uh, opened some doors for you, but also, uh, by all accounts, you've done a, a tremendous job through the years in uh, healing some of the rifts that might have existed in various factions there. How do you view, how have you viewed your role working with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, it's been a wonderful experience. Uh, you know, I was already promoting shows in Columbus. I had a passion for music, and uh, I became uh, the co-executive partner. We split the CEO role for a few years of a major national law firm with its biggest and oldest office in Cleveland. And when the folks at the Rock Hall heard about me taking on that job, leading a, a major Cleveland uh, institution, legal legal firm anyway, uh, and asked if I wanted to meet them. They brought me on. So, you know, the combination of the legal career and the fact I was promoting shows in Columbus, uh, you know, helped me get involved at the Rock Hall. But I ended up taking it very seriously. And uh, I uh, ultimately chaired, I guess kind of what you're getting at, there are two separate organizations. There's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation formed in, you know, 1982 or 83 by Jan Wenner and uh, uh, Ahmed Eritgen and, and a, you know, a, a bunch of music moguls uh, to do a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame initially as a television event. But then there's a separate entity, uh, a nonprofit uh, here in Ohio that owns and operates the building pursuant to a pretty convoluted licensing and management agreement mm. between the two institutions. And, um, before my time, really, there had been some tensions. I think some of them, I'm sure, were, were business and economic and some of them were personality uh, you know, Jan, uh, with whom I became pretty close, is a challenging guy. The yeah, <laughs> folks in Cleveland had great civic pride. And, uh, but I ended up on both boards, on bo- and I'm still on both boards. And, and in that role, I think, and then, you know, when we had a, a new CEO come on board, Greg Harris, who you ought to have on this show sometime. He's a great guy. Um, you know, we, we, we pulled it all together. And today, there isn't an ounce of tension. We're all working well together and you know the inductions are now in cleveland every couple of years it's great and people are always quick to criticize the hall for the people who have not been inducted i i tend to be more i guess glass half full and and i love the fact that the rock hall has been able to celebrate so many great artists through the years uh, is there is there perhaps one performer that more than other you hear from their fans who say why aren't they in yet you know, I'd have to think a little bit about that. There are there are still bunches. You'd have to toss a name or two at me, probably, Rich. Well, for us, there it's Warren Zevon. We always bring him up. Well, well, and for me as well, and for me as well, there is no question. Um, the the night that, uh, and again, you're going to have to help me. I can't remember who David Letterman inducted. It was uh, just a few years ago, but his induction speech for another artist was principally about why Warren should be in because, uh, you know, they obviously were very close. Uh, that, that, you know, there's the Graham Parsons, you know, in terms of my kind of music, there's Graham Parsons, there's, uh, you know, a handful of those, but, uh, I kind of got away from some of what turned out to be the classic rock of the 
70s and 80s. I joke the 80s, rock and roll of the 80s drove me to country music. And I, I love uh, that because I, I had a similar reaction myself. I heard you say that when you said in the 80s you were doing a, a country music show. Um, but, you know, there's there's certainly a lot of those bands have gotten in over the last five or six years. Um, but there are still others out there that you hear people screaming and yelling for. You came late to Springsteen. I, I came late to a guy you write about in the book and, and sort of a, a backdoor approach. We were uh, interviewing Van Dyke Parks a few months ago, and he said, uh, hey, you really need to have a friend of mine on the show. By the way, he's just moved to Maine. You'd love talking with him. And that was my introduction uh, to the music of Joe Henry, and we had a wonderful conversation with Joe, who's now, again, living here in the state, but you got a chance to see that wonderful tour that he did with Billy Bragg. Well, I did. I'm not sure it's in the book. The first time I saw Joe Henry, he was opening for the legendary Uncle Tupelo at a small club here in Yeah, that is in the book. In in the early 90s. Um, And then I did see him at Americana with Billy Bragg, uh, and spent some time talking to him. I've, uh, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but I've actually become pretty good friends with Rodney Crowell. And, and Rodney and, and Joe are great friends. Mm. They've worked together quite a bit. And uh, Rodney has said for a long time, Joe is somebody I need to bring to Columbus and, and promote a show. And I've actually reached out a time or two. Um, and to be honest with you, Rich, I did not know he was now living in Maine. He was on the West Coast at one point. But his, his roots, I think, or at least his wife's roots, are in Detroit. Uh, and so I talked a couple of times to trying to get him here uh, when he was coming back for family issues. But I've never, I've never been able to do it. You, you've inspired me to try again. Yeah, well, because he's, he's married, but I didn't know this until I researched him for a conversation. He's married to Madonna's sister. Yes, he is. That's, I think, the Detroit roots. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, everything comes full circle often in life and, and in your professional and personal time as a lover of music as well. And I love the story laid in the book of your involvement uh, with the musical about the life of Dion and then all of that leading to a meeting with him. Well, it, it, and, and uh, you know, it, it does all come full circle. And the funny thing is, I, when I started writing the book and, and, and started with Dion, it ended, that means that not the book, but the, the, the thoughts about Dion ended with seeing him at South by Southwest in, you know, 2016 or whatever year that was, uh, leading 200 people, you know, playing an acoustic guitar, leading 200 people and singing Run Around Sue in a conference room in the Driscoll Hotel. And that's, that was what I thought was going to be the Dion part of the book. Uh, well, I was, uh, you know... Uh, fortunate enough to have an opportunity to invest in the musical, The Wanderer. And uh, um, it's coming right along. It'll open. It was supposed to open at Paperville in, in uh, New Jersey last year. Then again, this year, it's now the dates are set for next spring and hopefully on Broadway in 2023. Uh, but anyway, I did right before the pandemic uh, go to a, uh, a reading of the musical at that point, just a few months before when it was supposed to open. And uh, sat in a room and uh, with about fifty people and, and the band, including the musical director uh, Steve Van Zandt, and all of the actors and actresses, ready to read their parts from a podium, sing their songs from a podium. Uh, when Dion came in and, and uh, the place was packed, he pulled up a folding chair and sat down next to me. <laughs> uh, you know, some uh, do my math. You know. 
50 years approximately after I first heard him on that radio. And then uh, who would imagine, well, maybe we, we would have, those of us who love his music, that all those years later, he'd be back at the top of the charts with the blues album. Yeah, how about that? And the guy's 80 years old. He looks fabulous. He sounds fabulous. And, and that's a great record. And the fact that, you know, he could get everybody from <laughs> Bruce Springsteen to, for gosh sakes, Van Morrison uh, and lots of people in between, you know, to play on that is a testament to uh, the reverence they all hold for Dion and his music. And, and, yeah, and it's a great record. Well, uh, Alec, it's a great book as well. Music in My Life is just a wonderful celebration of, of what we love about music and how it brings people together. Uh, I enjoyed every minute of reading it, and it was great to have a chance to talk with you about it here today. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rich. Uh, you know, I just I wrote the book for fun, uh, and it's fun to do things like this. Uh, you sound like a great guy. You know, you and I probably could sit and have this conversation for hours and hours and hours, but uh, I appreciate being on the show today. Thank you so much. Uh, be well and uh, continued success. Okay. Thanks, Rich. That is Alec Whiteman talking about his new book, Music in My Life, Notes from a Longtime Fan. Here on Downtown, the podcast, we'll pause for a quick word from the good people at Cross Insurance, and when we come back, Gary Newman on his new album, Intruder, and more. I'm downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, we're back on Downtown, the podcast with the latest from Gary Newman. Well, I gotta listen to you scream pretty music to my ears. Well, I gotta listen to it all day if you want me to. That is the title cut from Gary's new album, Intruder. A big global hit. It's already reached number two on the British charts. We had a chance to talk with Gary about the album, his recent run of successful hit recordings, and his career here on Downtown. Gary, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Love the new album. Uh, it has had great success. Uh, it's uh, Is it a bit of a relief because uh, the last album was, was so good and did so well? Was, was there a moment when you thought, boy, that's going to be a, a tough act to follow? Yeah, yeah, there were about two years of feeling like that, to be truthful. Um, it, it, it's a lovely problem to have, though, isn't it? You know, you know the, the previous album's done well, and now there's a pressure of trying to repeat that or, you know, to, you know, to maintain that sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a good problem to have. But, yeah, definitely, I was, um, I was very nervous to begin with, and uh, there were some, certainly some sort of darker moments during the making of it where I lost my confidence and so on. But I'm, I'm very, very pleased with the way it turned out, and it has been going very well. So I'm worrying about the next one now. <laughs> well, uh, this album, uh, Intruder, sort of completes the tale. Savage, in many ways, um, talked about the impact of climate change on, on individuals. This is now looking at, at what we're doing to the planet from the perspective of the planet. That's right, yeah. If, if the planet could speak, 
if it was able to articulate the way it feels about about us really about people and what we're doing to it then that's what intruders trying to do so it's not strictly speaking it's not meant to be my opinions you know um it is meant to be the way the earth feels but you know there's a <laughs> there's a very thin line between those two things well uh, i love uh, the title song intruder is great the video is terrific but i i think my favorite song on the album is i am screaming really yeah that's uh, uh Aid fenton who produced it that's his favorite song as well um and that's well, well that's a case in point you know that, that that's the earth trying to explain to us that it's given us all the signals that we need you know it's just it's just given us signals all over the planet and so many people are ignoring them and it's trying to articulate its frustration with that you know what more can it do to let to let us know that it's suffering and we need to do something about it that, that's the whole point of that song i saw an interview uh, recently where you, you said that you weren't all that pleased with some of the music you made uh back in the 90s but my goodness you're on a roll of of late does that does that to you make up for some things that maybe don't meet your own standards well, it doesn't make up for it no <laughs> no that, i um in '92, in particular, I did an album called Machine Style, which is which um, wasn't the best, really. But to be truthful, it could do at the time. You know, I, I just wasn't in a very good place. You know, life wasn't so great, and lots of things were going on. And my songwriting was definitely not as good as it as it needed to be. Um, not necessarily a, a bad album, but just wasn't a particularly good Gary Newman album. You know, if that makes any sense. But of late, yes, you know, I think since '94 onwards. The songwriting. I, I had a bit of a a moment in '92 after I made that not so good album, and I really stopped and looked at everything I was doing. I, I met my wife, who I've been with ever since, and and I turned things around. You know, and the music's got heavier and darker, more interesting, um, and I'm still there. You know, I'm still on that roll now, and I, and I think as each album's gone by, each one has been. I, I've learned from the mistakes of the one before, and each one seems to be getting a little bit better. So, you know, grateful for that. Grateful to still be here, to be honest, to be able to do that. We're talking with Gary Newman on Downtown. Uh, the Pleasure Principle, the single car is such a, a phenomenon uh, worldwide. Was that, it had to be, I think, an unsettling experience for a young guy to suddenly reach that level of fame? It was, actually. You, you know, there's no, um, all your preparation for, that kind of success really comes from sort of reading interviews with people you admire um, and that have been through it before. And I realised that a lot of them had lied about what it was like. <laughs> it wasn't like what they said it was going to be. It was much more difficult. And uh, I actually ran away from it. And I, I announced in 81 that I was going to retire um, from live performances. Um, the idea being I just needed to try to just get away from all the madness and the chaos of it and try to get my feet back on the ground. I wanted to stay a decent person. You know, I didn't want to become a drug addict or a drunk and all that, you know, all, with, with all that pressure. And so I just ran away from it. And, and I ran away for a, a couple of years, I think. And we seemed like a long time at, at the time. Um, and I just, I tried my best to grow up and, and try to understand what had happened and come back into it with a little bit more maturity and a little bit more control over it, to be honest, to be able to navigate my way through the weirdness a little bit better and i think that was a sensible thing to do i just shouldn't have announced it because that was a mistake i should have just quietly done it um and i think from then on i spent the next 40 years trying to make up for all the damage i did by saying i was going to retire <laughs> uh, not too many years ago you received the very prestigious uh, ivor novello 
uh, Inspiration Award. And, and so many people have talked about you as a, an inspiration in their careers and their music. Dave Grohl, Trent Reznor, Kim Wilde. We actually had a listener who uh, wanted to ask if uh, if you had, of all the people who've covered Gary Newman's songs, is, is there a favorite cover that you have? Well, there's been so many. I mean, it's been incredibly flattering. Um, but I am, I'm a huge admirer of Trent Reznor. Uh, and I think he did a he did a version of a song of mine called Metal, which came from the same album as Cars, I think, just in '79, uh, And I thought that was particularly brilliant. But I do I I, I do I am slightly biased towards Trent anyway because he's, he's a good friend and he's been very helpful to me in many ways. But it was it was genuinely an absolutely brilliant version of that song. I love the video, and I think it was from uh, the old Grey Whistle stuff. The video you did uh, with your daughter singing backup. Oh, yeah, that was amazing, actually. The, the first thing I ever did um, back in, uh, when was it, uh, 1979, the first TV thing I ever did was that program. And then it went off the air for, for decades, and they, they just did like a, a special version of it, and I, I was invited to do that. And by then, of course, I'd had, you know, I'd got my own children, and you know, my life was very different. So it was an amazing thing for me to, to go back to the place where, you know, in a, in a way, it all started. But and be singing with my daughter on that on that particular song. Who, who sings on that song on the record anyway? Because she was you know, genuinely needed to be there. But it was really cool, really really cool. One of, one of the best days. Do you still have that uh, Gibson Les Paul that your dad got you? Yep, still got it. <laughs> oh god, man! I, you know, of all the things I've got, you know, cars, houses, airplanes, all those things that I've, I've owned over the years, there's amazing things and you know, fantastic toys and so on. The only thing. That I could never bear to part with is, is that guitar. It, it, it symbolizes my whole life for me, my family, everything, everything. It, it, it absolutely means the world to me. In fact, so much so now that I've stopped taking it abroad. I, I, it lives here with me in Los Angeles, and it would do American tours with me, North American tours with me, but I, I don't think I'll ever fly it again. I'm, I'm too scared of it, of it being <laughs> stolen or damaged now. Well, I'm glad you still have it, and, and glad you're still not just making music, but sounding better than ever. The new album, Intruder, has been a huge success. It's wonderful music, and Gary, it's been great for us to talk with you today. We appreciate you making time for us, and wish you continued good health and success. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Gary Newman, the new album called Intruder, and uh, he's, he's one of those music survivors. I think if you had asked in the late 80s, Will people still be talking about Gary Newman in the 2020s? You'd have said, eh, probably not. But, you know, he carved out his own thing and, and I think freed from some of the pressure of you know, trying to make radio hits. Mm. has just been able to go out and do the kind of music he wants to do. It's a big difference. I mean, making that pivot from, you know, running after the next big thing and, and just doing the music you love to do. That's what he's doing. And that's, that's where, where he's found success. And as, as he said, you know, part of that was finding a good woman, uh, getting married. And <laughs> some of those early 90s albums, he's not particularly thrilled about these days. But I, I think any artist, too, well, really anybody, you want to think your best work is the work that you're, you're doing right now. Yeah, your next project is your best project. Yeah. Otherwise, why are you doing it? I mean, that's, that's the mindset of most people. And that's why, as much as we enjoyed this week's podcast, man, wait till next week. <laughs> <laughs> not, not always <laughs> doesn't always pay off that way, but, you know, we're we're hopeful as well. Our thanks to Gary Newman. Thanks to Alec Whiteman. His book is called Music in My Life. And thanks to you for joining us. If you like the show, give us a good old review. Big old five star would not hurt a bit. Subscribe, tell your friends, and we'll see you next time right here on Downtown.